I'm going to go out on a limb and say this either is or will become your favorite podcast. This is Cheryl, the show that's so good, you got to tell someone about it. Every episode, we explore the impact of people and technology on our lives and careers, and we send you away with something shareable. Now, without further ado, let's get to it. Hello, 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 you good-looking, shareable listeners. It is Jeff, your host. Uh, we have spent so much time together, and we've gotten to know each other so well. And um, it, it pains me to give you some bad news, but also it delights me to give you some good news. So if you haven't listened to any of the previous, uh, I think, three episodes I've made the announcement, but the big news is that I'm actually going to be winding down Shareable and starting up a brand new podcast called Rogue. Now, the reason that I'm shutting down Shareable is that um, I feel as though the topics that I want to cover expand a little bit beyond the original premise of Shareable. And rather than just changing the, the topic and the premise of Shareable once again, I kind of wanted to start from scratch. I really wanted to explore a new topic that is, I, I think, a little bit of an evolution of what we covered on Shareable, which is that um, the name of the show Rogue is an allusion to the X-Men character Rogue. And her superpower is the ability to absorb people's superpowers and their memories through touch. So she has this ability to just absorb other superheroes' superpowers, as well as uh, memories of normal people. It's, it's, it's a whole thing for her, but put that aside for the moment. The reason that I chose to name this show Rogue is the idea is to bring on real-life superheroes that walk among us, people who do incredible things, who have amazing abilities, whether it be in leadership, in company culture, in pottery, in cooking. I don't even care what it is, but if somebody has a superpower... I want to have them on the show, and I want to learn about their origin story. I want to learn about when they overcame adversity. I want to learn about the pivotal moments in their lives that shaped them to go on this trajectory to become a superhero like this. And the goal of the show is that you as a listener can walk away from the show learning how to implement that very same superpower, or at least the process that this person went through to acquire that superpower. That's the premise of the show. I'm super freaking jazzed about it. And I hope that you will join me uh, uh, coming from Shareable as a Shareable listener and join me on the new podcast, which I really feel like is going to be, um, you know, orders of magnitude, better, uh, more varied uh, and, and deeper uh, than Shareable was. I love Shareable. Shareable has been a wonderful experience for me. We've had tons of downloads. It's by far the most successful podcast I've ever had. And this is, I think, my fifth or sixth podcast. I can't even remember. Um, but I, I always enjoyed most talking to the guests. And now that I have a new career path in front of me, which I'll fill you in about uh, in the first few episodes of Rogue, um, I feel as though the shift is necessary to give me a brand new platform to explore these topics. So I really hope that you'll join me over there. Easiest way to find out more about the show is to go to jeffgibbard.com slash rogue, R-O-G-U-E. That'll have links to iTunes and everywhere else once we have that go live and the first episodes are up. Uh, but in the meantime, as a shareable listener, I'm going to be putting a couple abbreviated versions of the episodes, call them tra trailers or teasers. Uh, I'm going to be putting them on shareable so that you can get a a flavor of what the podcast is like without going and subscribing. Uh, though I hope that as soon as you hear, you know, the, the beginning, the, the first few episodes, the, the beginning rumblings of the show, that it entices you enough that you come over and you subscribe and you become uh, part of our tribe over at Rogue. Uh, so again, jeffgibber.com slash rogue, easiest place to find it. And without further ado, I'm, uh, in today's episode, I brought back Adam Pierno. You may remember him from, I believe it was season two of Shareable back when I was doing seasons and all that jazz. And he was working as a strategist at the time. And now he has moved over to Arizona State University, where he is heading up some 
pretty big initiatives relative to reaching out to alumni and uh, how they're managing their digital and social and content presence uh, to connect with these alumni and build a really engaged alumni base. So uh, I hope you enjoy this. Uh, it's a great conversation from my point of view. Um, and I really think Adam's just a, a dynamite kind of guy. And I, I had a great conversation with him. So hope you enjoy. And I hope you join us over on Rogue uh, in a few more episodes. So after 15 years of creating things for customers, end users, audiences, I, I think I finally realized I was much more interested in understanding them. Uh, so we could really be much more effective and efficient with what we were trying to tell them instead of taking orders and creating things just for the, the supposed right user to see. So where, did, where does that interest come from? And, and before we even get into that, Adam, it is great to have you back on the show. Thanks for coming uh, back. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the, uh, the, the second appearance. This is fantastic. Good yeah. to talk to you after, after a year or so. Yeah, so the last time you were on, uh, Adam Pierno, you were doing what? The last time you, you and I spoke, I was the chief strategy officer at an agency called Santi, which has since been acquired. Um, I left before the acquisition, but uh, now I am the uh, associate vice president of marketing strategy at Arizona State University's Enterprise Marketing Hub. Excellent. Well, I definitely want to talk about that, but let's, let's double back to that intro you said that you were much more interested in changing the frame of how you approach the work that you did. And, and it, it came down to not just selling people stuff and, and kind of turning people through, but where does that come from? Why, why did you decide to kind of make that shift in your career and go in that direction? What are you motivated by? Well, there was, there was definitely two factors. One, I think the subjectivity of, of creativity burned me out. Uh, so on one side, I was just getting worn down with you can have a team work for a hundred hours over two days and create something that is beautiful and genius and meets the brief and you could share it with the recipient, you know, a client for per se or, a, or a, somebody higher up and they could just say, well, I don't like it. And that is <laughs> after 20 years that gets, that gets frustrating. I think I just got burned out by that uh, phenomena. Um, but on the other side, I was really lucky to be exposed in my first creative director role to the tools, the frameworks, the terminology, the science behind understanding audiences. And every time I was exposed to a new tool, I was just drawn more and more in that direction and um, had a lot of people that I don't think were proper mentors, quote unquote, but were people that taught me, that trained me, that pulled me over, that took time to show me, hey, this is, let me take this apart for you and show you how these things work and how you, what you can figure out from this. That made, in my mind, it made creativity more, the word targeted is overdone, but it made the targeted easier to aim and easier to understand what we're trying to do and more purposeful than, um, you know, go create something cool uh, it's not an art show. We're, we're trying to accomplish something through this creative. I think this is the challenge that so many people that work in marketing or anything that's kind of tangentially related to marketing, you know, cause you could say a designer is a marketer, but a designer is a designer in, in a, probably a hundred different disciplines. So it's, it's hard to say it's all marketing, but I think this is kind of the, the push and pull of being in any kind of agency. So I've worked in situations where it's a highly analytical, highly data-driven, highly results-driven traffic and conversions type environments. And the challenge with that is that in order for those things to work, there's a lot of 
testing trial and error and failure that has to happen. And you have to have willing participants. You have to have clients that are willing to go along with your advice. They have to be willing to go along through that process. And that's oh, yeah. really challenging. But then on the other side, and, and, I, and when I've been in those environments, I've thought to myself, man, I just wish I worked for a brand agency. It's <laughs> <laughs> not a right answer, you know, where you could just be creative and you could come up with ideas and they're going to love me. But then you talk to people that work in brand agencies and you talk to creative agencies. And what they say is, man, I wish I just had some data to support that what I'm saying to you. Yes, the grass, is, the grass is truly always greener, isn't it? There is no right answer between this. But, you know, to your point, I think you're, you're talking a little bit about blending these two and, and kind of marrying the two together. So would you say that um, kind of your evolution out of creative after being burned out um, and moving more into uh, tools, technologies, data, analytics, things like that, that are helping to support and understand audiences better so that when you do create creative, it, it, it kind of better has a chance of landing. Um, is that where you feel that you are currently positioned or is that where you feel that you're, you're going or kind of where are you right now in that life cycle? No, I'm in the, I'm in the exact right landing spot. This, this position, uh, this university, this department and my skills that I have been building met at the exact <laughs> perfect time. So, um, I, what we're, when I was, uh, interviewing here, what, what they told me they were building and the data that they have, um, the processes they have, the trackers and the testing they have in place. It's, it's the right amount of testing to inform and confirm strategies and decisions that we've made and that we will make. So I think when you referenced, you know, really data driven agencies that want to do everything based on conversions and, and funnels and conflows and testing every part of it. That's a beautiful idea. And maybe 3% of the agencies and brands that say they're doing that actually have the discipline and funds to really do that to the level that needs to happen. You know, like when you hear about Google testing 40 different shades of blue, Google's the only company that has the, the patience and the discipline and the, the resources to test 40 different shades of blue on a conversion button. Uh, no one else can do that, but that's that's probably overkill. But even ten shades of blue, nobody has the discipline to do that. To, Correct. To even an ingredient test often feels like it's pulling teeth. I mean, well, it's a great idea when you're standing in there and with a PowerPoint. But like I always say, it's it's always a good idea until somebody has to work on Saturday, and then it's like, well, maybe maybe we'll just do one variation, and then we'll go from there. But I mean, realistically, everything should be funneling down from multivariates down to a winner, and then testing that against a new set of, win of uh, multivariates. I love that quote. I'm writing that down. It's always a good, a good idea until someone has to work on Saturdays. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. So here uh, in the hub here at ASU, they have, um, we're broken up into three groups uh, within this department. And so it's knowledge and insights, which is our fantastic um, research team for the lack of a better word, although they're much more than that, but they're looking at um, our, actually, let me step back a second because Scale has to be a factor. So we have, depending on who you ask, I'm going to say 600,000 uh, degreed alumni. And those numbers fluctuate and there's a, a greater pool, but 600,000 degreed alumni, which is really our focus to maintain a relationship with those people, to keep them engaged with the university, to build their affinity, to build their understanding of how the ASU, the university and the brand has evolved since they left because it used to stand for one thing, but now it stands for excellence and um, access and all these amazing things that are now part of the charter and have been for, for years. But when they were here, they may have memories of what college was like for them then. So it's always this ongoing education. 
Yeah. So let me, let me pause you right there. And just, I want to put a pin in that just for the audience to make sure that we're, we're framing the conversation correctly here is that the work that you're doing at Arizona State University, which if I'm not mistaken, that it, is that not one of the, is that the largest? Um, I, I believe it is. Yeah. It, yeah. It's the largest uh, college in the country, right? By, by admissions, right? Yes. And that, that may uh, depend on how you look at conglomerated um, for-profit online universities that may differ, but for public university, for sure. Wow. Okay. So, so just again, to, to kind of reset the, the stage for people, you deal in uh, the alumni, basically outreach connection engagement side of the business uh, for the largest uh, public university in the country. And exactly. your job is to leverage the various um, resources and tools at your disposal, work with your different teams to make that uh, initiative a success. And we're going to break that down now. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, talk, so let's go back. Uh, sorry to, to pause and put a pin in that. I just want to make sure that we're, we're all on the same page moving forward. I'm glad you did that because even I get confused and I've been here uh, seven or eight months now. So uh, it, is, it is one of the things that is, makes it a fun and challenging job, but also sometimes confounding is it's huge. There's so many units, there's so many departments, there's so many colleges, there's, there's so much going on. So it is hard to track. Um, but the hub itself is our kind of our centralized marketing part marketing department and that is itself unique for universities to have a kind of a centralized uh, team that handles the brand and inside of this department we have our knowledge and insights team we have the creative team and then we have the strategy team which is which is my team Um, and we have the I handle media management so any kind of paid media runs through our team we have an agency that helps us buy uh, we have our loyalty app, which is called Sun Devil Rewards, which is a very, very unique uh, loyalty app because we've built it ourselves and maintained it ourselves. It's not an off-the-shelf product. Uh, and then I also handle uh, brand partnerships, which is another fantastic uh, aspect of my job, and I really get to draw on my, my consumer experience there. So it's, it's very fulfilling and super-duper busy. Got it. So one of the things that I've always thought about um, – and I'm really, I'm super interested to talk to you about this. And I'm glad that this is where your career is taking you because I'm going to ask you the, the tough questions as an alumni of not Arizona State University, but of uh, Drexel's LeBeau College of Business, where I got my master's of business and then Temple University undergraduate. I found that most of the alumni communication that I get is a paper mailer that says, hey, give us money. Yes. Uh, or, or it's some sort of a magazine of some sort that highlights uh, a bunch of other people other than me and um, then asks me for money. So. Yeah. You know, I'd imagine with a much, much, much larger alumni base that you have at Arizona State University, it can be very, very difficult to humanize the experience of connecting with alumni, of making them feel appreciated, acknowledged, uh, individual, unique, all of the things that we want to have as experiences of being alumni at a university. We want to feel that we were important there, that our time there mattered. How do you guys go about utilizing these different tools. You know, you said knowledge and insights, loyalty app, brand partnerships. You've got these, these kind of different pillars and, and things that you offer um, and, and are able to utilize. How are you using that to really connect with these alumni in ways other than, hey, give us money? Yeah, that's a great question because that's the number one thing people expect when they get some kind of a communication from any university. I went to Boston U. When the phone rings or when they when I see an email, I'm like, oh God, they're gonna hit me up, right? The call to action is gonna be, wouldn't you like to donate today? Hard pass. You know, you didn't what's the value exchange that I want? So what we're trying to do is not only build the relationship and build the affinity and build the strength of the brand and 
and engage the alumni, but we're also trying to do that at scale. So that's an important thing. We're, we're removing the, we're trying to find ways that are one-to-one -one connections, but that can be done for this huge audience that don't take a single, you know, development officer walking door to door. The other beautiful part is I legitimately don't have any fundraising responsibility. That is a different department. So the communications that we're creating, the experiences that we're creating, the content that we're curating and pulling from and, and writing, that does not have to have a fundraising component to it. That's not part of our call to action. That is a critical piece for any organization that is trying to improve CX is figure out the pain point or where people stop short and then create something short of that that you can engage them on without that call to action because it, the more I get shell-shocked from being asked for a donation to the university, the less likely I am to even stay subscribed or to pick up the phone when you call or to open that mailer. Yeah, it makes sense because it's just ask, 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 and you're, you're being asked to part with money, which in, in you know, the, I, I think as far as um, entities that have some, some kind of balls to ask me for money, I think my university would be one of them given how much I paid for that education. So, um, you know, I, I tend to feel that it's a very one-sided relationship. I'm, I'm really curious about, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of doing at scale something that's one-to-one. -one, and I love the fact that they've taken fundraising off of your plate, that that's not a part of your job responsibility. So talk to me about what you guys are doing differently because I'm yeah. curious because all I have ever seen to kind of the point of your experience and my experience, and I know a number of other people that have gone to universities and their only experience is being asked for money by an entity that you just paid 60 to a couple hundred thousand dollars to go and, and get a degree from. So yeah, well, one, thing I'm, one thing I'm really excited about is um, we have segments that, that were created based on um, aggregated data. So we have a, a very rich data program here where we're pulling in, but it's not individualized data. So I've, I've presented this internally to other units and I've seen uh, alumni who work on staff get kind of terrified of what we're tracking about them. We don't, an individual's data is worthless. Right? Unless you ask Amazon, it's worth exactly $10. But anybody else, it's worthless. Um, what we want to do is aggregate it and then segment it. Now what we're doing is evolving the segments, which were based on um, data from the way they behaved when they were students into personas, which are taking the same data and uh, forecasting based on who they are today and just putting a lens over what their behaviors are today and reducing the weighting of how we looked at what they did when they were in the university. So for example, a segment may be uh, athletically inclined. That means they went to every sporting event and they were really big fans when they were here of the football team, for example. But now a, a persona may be less interested in athletics. It's less tied to that. We still have the data to tell us what kind of behaviors they have. And so therefore, based on those personas, we can create um, grouped email programs, group social programs, different kinds of accounts, different kinds of communications. We create bespoke events. Uh, we identify partners who would be uh, attractive to those audiences, and then we'll partner with them on different types of events. We may bring in speakers that would attract those types of uh, audiences today, and based on things that we know that are unique, like what did they study when they were here? You know, what kind of degree do they have? So somebody who's a sociology major or somebody who studied climate science 10 years ago, we know how to reach them today with content that's meaningful. Uh, and our team is writing uh, 
not just the hub, the university through our ASU Now program is writing tons and tons and tons of content capturing all the research and all the work that's happening here that is truly mind blowing. Talk to me a little bit about what you're doing from a content perspective. Um, when uh, at, my, at my most recent agency, um, you know, we were trying to do a lot with clients in social, but the problem was we decided at an early point and, and the decision not, was not entirely mine that we weren't going to be doing content. So we weren't going to be producing content. And I've always found it's very difficult to succeed at all in social media if you don't have content. It's the only thing that's going to stop you from scrolling. It's the only thing that's going to capture your attention in those feeds. Talk to me a little bit about what it looks like at, a, at a, an organization of your size with the number of different segments that you likely have and the number of different interest categories. And um, how do you go about building the volume of content that you would even need to reach a handful of those segments? Like what, what's the process look like there? Well, yeah, it's distributed. So the, <laughs> the way that you do that is you have an army of people that are creating content individually that are pooling up to bigger resources. So I, for example, I, I'm looking at my inbox right now and every day, like clockwork, the, the daily issue of ASU Now comes. And ASU Now will highlight three articles about things that are happening. And I assure you that each of those things, you know, will spawn a series of social posts across channels, you know, rewritten for the appropriate uh, user type of that platform. It'll create video. Then we also have here in the hub, one of the other fun things we do, fun is a, is a silly word to use actually, it's, it's a tremendous magazine, it's called Thrive. And it's our alumni communications piece. It goes out to 400 to 450,000 people with each issue. And that is another place where there's uh, brand new articles written by pro journalists. It's not a, like a student publication, not that there's anything wrong with student publications, they're fantastic. Um, but it's written at a very, very high level and communicating not just things that our students are doing or our professors or our research, but things that are happening from people that are partnering with the university or things we're observing or uh, alumni are doing in their own companies. And they're not these, um, the, the alumni magazines I've read are kind of puff pieces, you know, and it's like, oh, this alumni from the class of 98 got a promotion. These are hardcore journalistic articles looking at what these people are doing and they're, they're amazing stories that then get spun into every piece, every type of piece of content. So for example, um, the Roden Crater is a place where uh, the artist uh, James Terrell has created this amazing masterwork over 20 years and ASU is a, uh, uh, a big part of that. And they went and they created the seven minute video and on the day they were shooting that video, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian were there because the entire piece is created for one day per year where the sun hits the glass exactly in the right way and lets in light to showcase what it can do. So when they were there filming that, Kanye was there. Yeah, I mean, it's like that's the scale of the, of the things we're talking about. So that those kind of things make content a little easier. Uh, it's harder when it's a typical Tuesday and you're trying to figure out, all right, what are we gonna, what are we gonna say today that's gonna motivate and excite people? Yeah. Do you, so I'd imagine you have a, probably a very robust content calendar. Um, I'm curious about, you know, your content resources that are available to you. I mean, you're at, at the strategic level kind of 
uh, looking out at the different segments that you have, you probably have some sort of objectives that are, that are handed down to you or that you've come up with based upon what you're seeing is working or what's needed at the university level or whether it's, um, you know, getting uh, alumni more engaged or getting into more sporting events or whatever it might be. I'm curious about the sort of resources that you have and how you plan out those things ahead of time. I, I guess my, uh, the crux of the question is how, how does one do social media and content at scale? And that's what I'm curious about how you're doing it. So there's a, there's a number of different working groups. It's, it's really matrix. Uh, and I hate to use biz speak, but I don't know a better way to describe it. Uh, there's 110 units or academic units and business units here. And there's, um, I don't know how many of those have their own unique social channels plus social plus uh, student groups. So it's uh, there are a number of working groups that get together to coordinate the sharing of content, the coordination of content, uh, and then I manage a group called the Core Brain Group, which is the the essentially the largest uh, uh, media savvy groups I would say that have uh, budget and wherewithal in the um, and motivation in the marketing space. Uh, there are a couple that are that are not participants, but for the most part, it's the the biggest and most able participate that have a um, you know lead communicator or a director of marketing level person. We meet once a month to discuss trends, content stories that we can all rally around, uh, things that are happening out in the university and the greater environment to get aligned on stories. And so that may be the uh, President's office may be saying, well, President Crow is going to be taking this new position on this issue. So what do we have that we can all rally around? Here's a, here's a flag post date that we need to start you know, talking about this and building up to it. Um, or someone would say, hey, this, this unit is getting ready to publish this crazy piece of research. Let us tell you about it. And then everybody's brains start working. Uh, at another level, there's social media working groups, there's digital working groups that are all coordinating on their respective levels and, you know, at a platform level, at a channel level, at a uh, calendar level, all those people are aligning up to make sure there's multiple levels of air traffic control because, you know, uh, two jobs ago, I worked at Verizon and I, it wasn't this complicated at Verizon. That is surprising. Yeah, the scale and the, the shape of it is just so different. Yeah, I, that's surprising. Here's why I think that's surprising. I would assume at a company like Verizon or any sort of other public utility or, or large public entity that you would have many, many layers of approval and um, uh, compliance and a variety of other different things. So that would, to me have some sort of a complexity, but what you just described also sounds like there's a wide variety of players that are all playing at the same time. There's, it sounds like a pretty reactive, um, I mean, as a, in addition to being both proactive and thoughtful about what's coming up and being strategic about that, there's also a, Hey, this just happened. What should we do about it? I'm curious about at that scale, what does turnaround time look like? What does approval levels look like? How did you how did you either walk into an organization that was already well-structured or how did you influence the structure to allow for the speed that's required for the scale of social success at the level that you're playing? Yeah, great question. I'm, I'm very impressed by both the structure that existed when I got here and the willingness to reconsider at each, at each juncture, you know, is this the right structure? Is this, uh, is this, should we hire someone to do this? Should we move this person over there? Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, is not irresponsible shuffling the cards every two days, but 
when someone leaves, for example, to take a new position or to retire, the leadership is very thoughtful about it. Do we just slot someone into that role or what's a better way to use those funds? Or let's look at the problems we're solving and look at the org chart and say, is this the right shape? You know, should we add two junior people instead of one, this replacing this one senior person, or is this the right skill set that we had? Because as you know, Jeff, especially in digital and social, you could hire someone with a very conventional title, you know, and they could come in and do the checklist of the things in the job description on the first day. But by year two, before they leave for their next job, they're a unicorn and they've taken on, oh, they also do some video editing and they also do some this and they assist with the podcast that we started that now stopped and they have this other skill. So replacing that person one for one is almost impossible anyway. You know, that's true of any organization. But I've been impressed with the, the thoughtfulness here of how they keep the structure fluid while keeping the quality really high. I think that's a really important point to, that I, I kind of want to pause on that and just put a pin in that as well is that I think people think that to scale, you have to be rigid, but from the sounds of it, you're saying to scale, you actually have to be flexible. Um, because I, I think the idea is that, you know, scale comes from um, standardization of processes and doing, and I think that's probably something that's very important in the way that you, you all do things, but the fact that you're reassessing them and relooking at them and disrupting yourselves I think sounds to me like one of the keys to your success. Yeah. And I don't, I have long thought of, of staffing and um, hiring more as creating knitting a net more than putting pegs in holes or like filling a, an org chart. It, you're trying to cover a lot of ground. And so each person is a strand of the net and they, they cover a certain set of things. And it, you, it, I wish that it lined up the way job descriptions are written, but it, it really doesn't. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Let me ask you a, a few more questions before I want to kind of dig into just a few very tactical questions. But yeah, just from a trend perspective and, you know, operating at this scale, you obviously have a lot of data to look at and you have an audience that ranges in age from from what? I mean, you, you have probably recent college grads all the way up to people who have been out for a while. What, what would you say is the age range just so I can frame the question I'm about to ask you? Oh, no, you're, you're dead on. I mean, it goes from people that are 20, you know, people that graduated uh, before they're, they're scheduled. No, normally we think of someone that's 21, but spring of uh, 19 grads, it might be 20, 21 years old. And all the way up, we have uh, alumni that are in their 80s. Although, you know, you can see the, the tail of that shrinks, especially as the university grew. But so the sweet spot is really, you know, between 40 and 60. Got it. Okay, cool. So that's perfect because in my head, I'm thinking about you know, the research I've seen from the Pew Internet Research Studies and seeing, you know, social media adoption, which, which channels people are using, um, you know, how people feel about social media, what sites they're pulling back from, which ones that they're spending more time on, et cetera. I'm curious in your experience, if you've seen any trends around different social channels, which ones have become more or less important in recent years. And then kind of related to that, I'm curious about if you're seeing that any sorts of content, whether it be blogs, podcasts, videos, live video, short form video, Instagram stories, any of those sort of things. I'm curious if either channels or content trends um, that you're experiencing in, in your world are mapping onto kind of the general aggregate trends that we're seeing. Yeah. And I, I want your feedback on this too, as, as I know you oversee and see a lot of content and results from uh, different types of brands and clients. So I'd love to compare notes here. Um, Instagram stories continue to rise in 
success metrics, quote unquote, you know, they get a lot of views, they get a lot of engagement. Uh, and when we're talking about brand affinity, which is my, my number one charge, that's valuable to me. Uh, what I, and I see a lot of push towards creating more types of content spread over more platforms. So let's create a podcast to communicate about this. Let's create uh, more YouTube or more video in general. And those things will get a certain level of success. You know, they'll hit the goal that we set. What I, what I get concerned about both here and, you know, on, on brand channels is, you know, outside of ASU, just thinking about the media world, the media landscape. I don't know what kind of impact that has as you keep carving up and creating new platforms to meet people where they are, which is the, which is the ask and the requirement. Uh, you're, you're, you are meeting less and less people at each place where they are. So you're making less of an S, less and less of a scale impact. And that's, you know, that's part of what my, my book specific is about is how do you turn that into something meaningful when you're asked to just keep creating new places to have that conversation? Is that consistent with what you, what you're seeing as well? Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like there's some overlap there. Um, I'll tell you kind of what I'm seeing. So I think audiences are indeed fragmenting, but uh, you know, sometimes I'll talk with someone and they'll say, well, I don't think our audience is on Facebook and you can just easily go on Facebook and you'll type in their audience age and their gender and the different demographics. You say, look, it may not be everyone, but you have an audience here. So you can reach your audience here. So basically my feeling is any of these channels that have an advertising option where they give you the option to reach whoever you ask for basically your audience is there so you can reach them there. Now, the the impact of advertising, the trust in advertising on the decline is obviously something that's a factor. But the way that I would look at it is kind of to your point is that you need kind of an an omni-channel strategy these days because your audience is... It's not like the, the, the user that you're reaching on Instagram isn't also potentially on Facebook and Pinterest, right? It could just be that they use Instagram the most. But they're also going to look at a YouTube video. And then... I guess similar to how you talked about hiring and thinking of it as like a net, when I think of building a quote unquote funnel, to me, a funnel isn't a linear thing. To me, a funnel looks like a giant web. It looks like this mess. It's like a ball of yarn where I don't care where my first interaction is with somebody that I'm targeting. If I'm working with a brand and they're trying to target someone anywhere, I'm trying to set up outposts all over the place and that the first interaction they have with that one outpost brings them somewhere where I'm able to then continue on that relationship with them, whether that's email marketing and dripping on them, whether that's remarketing to them on Facebook, LinkedIn, Reddit, Quora, wherever they might go. Um, I'm looking for how do I get my hooks into someone in, in the least creepy way that that sounds and then try to engage them with something that's relevant and interesting and kind of move them along that buyer journey. Yeah. Or, or in our case, it's not, we're not selling, but yes, into a relationship journey. And that's what we've been working on is what, what is the journey we want them to take besides clicking and taking the, the social metric, which are just essentially useless. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it can be measured, but it doesn't tell me. So we have to align those things at each stage with a brand tracker um, and with individual surveys that we do and, and different ways to cross-reference so that each audience and uh, we do recall studies. So we're saying, oh, okay, they, they saw the TV spot and then they interacted with us on Instagram or they saw the TV spot and they ignored us on Instagram. And we're trying to draw uh, as much as we can correlations and our team is fantastic, uh, but sometimes it's causation and sometimes it's coincidence. Yeah, I, I think that for me, it comes down to almost, it's almost like a Boolean statement. I think most, 
uh, unsophisticated marketers and people who have not seen success have treated most tactics as an and question. I mean, sorry, an or question rather than an and question. So they're saying, should we use Instagram stories or should we advertise on LinkedIn? Right. And yes, the answer is yes. The answer is yes, exactly. You should use Instagram stories to uh, trigger some brand awareness at the highest level. And then on LinkedIn, you may be able to meet them later with some more uh, middle of the funnel type of content where you're explaining things to them, you're exposing your differentiators, things like that. So yeah, and the yeah. and the answer though is is or or the part two of that answer is yes, but at what point do we have to say no more freaking channels? Like we we can't. I I understand that's a great idea for a podcast, and we might get you know a thousand listeners per episode, but I can't do anymore. We just <laughs> we can't have more headcount, or we don't have the time, or it's that thousand people is not going to be the return that we need to add another channel or platform or service. Yeah, exactly. And it always comes down to that supply and demand question of basically budget and time. If you have more time than budget, then you should be doing it all yourself. If you have more budget than time, then you outsource it. But if you have both budget and time, you should do as many things as you can possibly support, analyze the results of them, continue to push on them, tweak them, and see if it's worth the value if you get a positive return on it, even if it's just a contributing factor elsewhere. Um, you know, understanding that there's value in things that don't directly correlate to revenue generation. So yeah, man, I, it's really interesting to, to hear that at, at scale, you kind of ask the same questions and look at the same things that you do if you're working with small brands. It's just that you have more options to try more things, but you, you have to ask the same questions. You know, you have to ask, when do we stop? When do we start? What should we add? How do these two things work together, et cetera? Yeah. And some things in a, in a, for a consumer brand, you can essentially start with a blank slate at the beginning of a year, you know, or let's say it's a, a CPG. You know there's going to be some product launches. You know there's some key holidays. You have some partners that are retailers that have some days that you're, you're contractually you need to participate in, right? Here, we have a calendar of annual events that are aimed at alumni and bringing alumni and students together that makes up a lot of our communication strategy and eats a lot of the budget before we even get going on planning for affinity. So going through that process um, earlier, you know, over the last two months and seeing, oh, okay, these things were already committed. And this is, we're doing them the same way because there's a huge committee that would have to be moved to change to do something totally different to support this event. is not possible in a, in a year, you know, it'll take two or three cycles to, to convince people let's try something different or is it worth it even? Um, so it's, you have to figure out how to be really, really impactful with the small piles of impact you can make. And that, that's been a, a learning for me is, I, all right, these are my three areas that I get a lot of voice in. What can I do? How thoughtful can I be? How much impact can I really make here to um, move the needle where I'm, where I'm going to be measured? Because the rest of the things are going to, I can pretty much count on. It's the same event with the same budget and the same people and the same audience the results is going to be pretty similar. So the rest of the things I really need to figure out how to make them work. Yeah, man, I dig it. So I'm going to ask you one more question before I I want to have us wrap on kind of having you set people up for where to start on how to scale. But the last question I want to ask you about is just more of kind of what you've seen in, in your, in your world of things The the it's two kind of interrelated questions, but the first is how important you've seen video in your experience over, you know, the time that you've been at ASU and then, related to that, because I think it is intimately related to it, how important is it or, or what are you seeing in the difference between um, content that is 
branded. It is clearly high quality, heavily produced branded content versus more man on the street, um, you know, um, you know, just human video, like people just, you know, selfie cam type stuff. Have you experimented with both? Uh, and are you seeing any sort of trends in what's working for, for the university at scale? Yeah, our team is fantastic. So we have a social team, we have a creative team that, that, um, has a full video team. There's, there's a whole uh, group of editors out there who are, who are amazing, uh, that can go shoot, edit, you know, capture events, capture, um, things artfully and produce really high end video that, that feels very polished and produced. We also have, uh, external partners that we work with that will go create, you know, broadcast quality videos as well. So we have the full gamut here and we're fortunate to do that. What I've seen is that on different platforms, different things perform better. Uh, I would say, you know, on Facebook stories and Instagram stories, uh, on, on social channels, the man on the street or the social capture, you know, something that looks like it was shot with the phone and captured first person tends to perform better. Uh, except in the case of producing something like the road and crater video, which is a, a beautifully produced piece with, you know, uh, licensed music and, you know, the full production quality, uh, every, everything you could want in it, that thing has also performed really well via YouTube and being embedded in the right places and getting in front of the right audience, which includes media. So again, like everything, right? Know who you're producing it for, you know, our enrollment services communications team is creating things for, uh, incoming students who are prospects that are looking for their university and their mindset and what they're creating for is a totally different audience than when we're creating for uh, donor level alumni who are interested in art and, and art, you know, magnificent, huge scale art installations that are built into a crater. Um, that's <laughs> those are two different audiences by nature. So the, it makes sense that those pieces feel so different. Got it. All right, cool. So there's a time and place for both. I think so. The thing I want to wrap up on is, um, you know, you're in a really unique position. Um, it, it's sort of like when you go to a social media conference and uh, you see that the keynote speaker is from American Airlines or McDonald's. You know, it's like these are these are brands. These are companies that are operating at a level that many, many small businesses and even medium sized businesses can't even dream of having the kind of resources and team. Um, so what I what I'm interested to have you do here is, you know, you're you've got an extensive background that does not include just um, it, that includes things other than working for the largest university in the country. So I'm, I want you to take all of the experience you have bundle it all together. And I want you to take the things that you've learned from being at ASU and all the things before. And I want you to talk about how to build social media and content at scale for small and medium sized businesses. Walk us through for, for whatever it is, whether it's questions to ask yourself, uh, you know, research to do, um, things to think about, um, projects to get started and planned, whatever it might be, whatever your advice for people would be. I want this part of the episode to close out on you giving people kind of, if you were to sit down and start a brand new, smaller, medium sized business or, or pick up one that hasn't really begun yet, where would you start if you wanted to build a scalable social media and content department? Yeah, of course. So, uh, I am not a process person, uh, which may be surprising given my title. Um, I am a straight line person. So I see, you know, I try to create a path from where we are to where we don't want to go. You know, what do we want to accomplish? And is this the real problem? However, uh, the question of how do you do it at scale? How do you create um, social and content teams at scale that can grow if you're successful? Number one, 
um, you're going to have to start with your audience now and you're going to have to make a map of who you want the audience to be going forward. So make a plan for that. The audience now is going to be your specific people, which is, you know, who are the people that are going to be there and rally around you today when, you, you know, on day one of your, of your venture, that may be 10 people. It may be a hundred people, but you have to have a plan for you're not just scaling your team, but let's say you're really successful and the audience grows and it's a hundred people, then a thousand people, then 10,000 people in three months. That is a blessing and a curse if you're not prepared for it. So uh, make a plan for who the audience is today and where you think you will be able to impact growth and add people so that you're planning content to appeal to those people instead of reacting to new facets that are coming in for you know, reasons that you hadn't thought of. Uh, so that you're shaping that content beforehand uh, the other thing I would say is document everything now. So another thing I've seen happen at startup type companies and startup type agencies is they grow really fast and maybe they do, maybe like right now Slack is really popular because it allegedly keeps a record of all the conversations around, you know, a channel, how we're communicating and how we're growing things. Well, that's not really a document. So when that person that you hired when you were five people becomes content director and then goes gets a content director job somewhere else, that person has left with all your process. It's, it all lived in her head or his head. And so now you have to start from scratch. So make, make a point of creating documentation of how you do everything, even if it's in real time. You know, oh, okay, like I've just done this when I was creating a persona, I created a document that can be shared with other units and other teams here that say, oh, okay, this is how you do that. It's an instruction manual for the next person so that it can be a training guide, it can be a replacement guide, it can be, a, hey, we're starting a new unit, how did we do that guide? Uh, and I, those two things alone are tremendous. Um, I would also say having a plan for hiring and having, it's kind of a cliche to have your next five hires identified, but nobody does it. It's a weird cliche that nobody lives up to. And then you're always in this reactive mode of hiring unless you're like Percolate or, you know, one of the three companies that always gets featured on those HR is so amazing uh, blogs. But it's, it's critical to know, look at the org chart and then say, okay, if we are going to grow in this way and if the audience is going to grow in this way with these types of people or this type of product, then what type of staff do we need? And then start interviewing those people or start identifying those people, which um, you can do through social, even without wasting their time or you know, giving sending mixed messages that you're not ready to hire yet. But you can start that networking process to reach those people. And so, in those three ways, you've addressed staff, you've addressed process, and you've addressed audience. Um, the only thing next to do is is you know grow. I love it. I love it. People, process, and uh, audience, basically. It's really, it's really simple. You know, you can, you can overthink everything, but I, I try to boil it down to really basic stuff. Yeah. I mean, I heard a wise man once say that we should underthink it. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how wise that guy is, but I did. I he read a book. He's got to be pretty smart. <laughs> uh, audience for the record. I'm talking about Adam's book. Under Thank you, sir. Thank you for that plug. I appreciate plug. it. Yeah. Um, well, listen, man, it, it was really awesome having you on the show. I mean, there. I just love talking to you about stuff because we have uh, such interesting and slightly overlapping backgrounds and I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but um, yeah, same. we covered a lot of ground in here. I think we, we really unpacked how to look at social media and content at scale, which means that I, I feel like we've done our job and we've created an episode that I'd have to sum up in one word and say it's shareable. 
Wait, the show's not over yet. I have some important announcements. If you made it this far, you're clearly a dedicated fan or you're in the middle of vacuuming and just haven't hit stop on your podcasting app. Whatever the case, we want to thank you. We're not just music to your ears, we're music to your inbox. If you subscribe to our email list at sharablepodcast.com slash subscribe, not only will you get access to our private Facebook group, you'll also get all of our blog posts, newsletters, special announcements, and more. You won't find any of that in your podcast feed. You can follow the show at shareable underscore pod on Twitter and just shareable podcast on everything else. You can find Jeff online at jeffgibber.com and you can connect with me on Twitter at Caroline Sohn because I don't have a website yet. So go ahead, call us, leave a message, subscribe to our list, leave a rating, review us on iTunes, tell a friend, tell your mom. If she's like my mom, she'll love it. And now for the thank you portion to all the folks that make this podcast possible. Shout out to DJ Quads for the use of our theme song, Always, and Ahamitsu for the use of our outro song, Adventures. And a big thank you to Ray Bueno for all of that sexy production value. 